0: Hi there, and welcome back to Medicine Unmasked, healing the healers through anonymous storytelling. I'm your host, Dr. Sonia Pimparker. In our previous episode with the neurology resident, you might recall her sharing a heart-wrenching story involving an ER doctor delivering devastating news to a close family member in a less than compassionate manner. My mom was like, I almost stood up, grabbed him by the back of his neck, and said, try that again. But instead, she you know, was kind of stunned and let him walk away. Today, let's shift our perspective and take a moment to ponder the circumstances surrounding that ER doctor. Specifically, what might have happened to that provider in order for him to feel like he has no other choice but to deliver bad news in such a callous way? I want to believe that this doctor entered the medical profession to provide good, compassionate care to others. And it makes me wonder, what circumstances or pressures might he be under that made him feel like that was the only thing that he could do? Could it be that He had been pushed to the brink by overwhelming workloads, leaving him with little compassion to spare. Perhaps he had just completed a grueling 100-hour week, and this was his last patient. Maybe his shift actually ended hours ago, but he was forced to work additional hours to support his overworked colleagues. Or it's possible that he had just come from trying and failing to save an even sicker patient, and giving a terminal diagnosis somehow felt pale in comparison to the horrors that he had just witnessed. The exact circumstances may forever remain a mystery, but it brings us back to the concept of self-preservation in a system that is always asking for more and more from its workers. In that vein, for today's episode, we have an unapologetically candid conversation with a primary care physician who sheds light on the true demands of a medical career and the unrealistic high expectations often placed on healthcare workers. I'm also excited to share a surprise segment on Medicine Unmasked that you'll hear about a little later in the episode. I think you're really going to like my guest today. I'll let her introduce herself.
1: I am a family medicine attending physician, kind of going through a bit of a life change in this moment. Interesting time to catch me.
0: Great. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. It's five o'clock on a Friday, the end of a hectic day in clinic you're a primary care physician drowning in paperwork, school forms, FMLA requests, sick notes, prior authorizations, and a backlog of unaddressed lab work for your patients, as well as a constant influx of messages from patients asking you questions, requesting refills, and a whole host of other tasks. And there, in your last appointment of the day, your patient arrives with a heavy heart ready to share their struggles with depression. Your compassion compels you to listen, to be there for them in their time of need. That's why you went into medicine in the first place, isn't it? But as time goes on, you find yourself at a crossroads. The clock is ticking and your 20 minute appointment has now stretched well past the 40 minute mark. What do you do? This scenario is all too common in the world of healthcare. The struggle to balance empathy with professionalism, to set boundaries without feeling guilty, and to manage the weight of societal expectations can be overwhelming. Staying late after work occasionally is seen as part of the job, an expression of your passion for helping others and quote unquote, doing the right thing. Calling a patient with a new cancer diagnosis, the unnerving results of a recent brain MRI or a wildly abnormal lab result that just cannot wait till the next day. In the hospital, it can look like staying late after a 24-hour shift to convey the results of an urgent scan, or calling to update worried family members. All of that patient communication happens outside of normal working hours. It presents as unpaid labor that is done because it is the right thing to do but often goes unrecognized and uncompensated. When it happens once in a while, it's easy to sweep under the rug as just another professional responsibility. What happens when these actions of going above and beyond become an expectation? Are you really passionate about your job or are you just complacent about being exploited? And to take it one step further, what happens when mass amounts of exploitation become the backbone of an entire healthcare system? That also leads me to ask the question: Is medicine a career or a calling?
1: It's been the hardest question for like all interviews for medical school, for residency, like that. How did you get into medicine is really hard, which I think is telling for where I'm at now, which I think from a medicine perspective, I would identify as a, you know, female physician family medicine trained. Although I'm in a life transition now where medicine is becoming less of my focus. Um, and I'm not sure where I'm moving next, hmm. but I don't know if that's my identity. And I don't know if I was ever hundred percent comfortable with that being an identity so much as being a job. And I think that's a lot where some conflict comes in.
0: It's almost that question of, is medicine a career or a calling? Right. Is it something that supersedes a job and it's all encompassing and the only right way is to be the best, dedicate all of your time in trying to pursue essentially the biggest, baddest, most, you know, high up on the totem pole type of career. And if you're not doing that, what does that say about you? Did you ever like struggle with, you know, am I a doctor and is that my primary identity? Is that how I, when I recognize myself and who I am, it is my job or is it I am a mom, or I'm a female, or I enjoy these UCC's hobbies, who happens to be a doctor?
1: Right. I think that's the conflict. I think that's the core of the conflict. It was very difficult for me in that transition from medical school into residency and beyond to be called doctor. I was uncomfortable with it. I, um, like in the clinic, you know, where um, medical assistants or, or other, you know, sort of staff would call me doctor so-and-so, and I... That was weird to me. It was weird Mm -hmm. to answer to that. And um, for many years, I didn't tell people like socially what I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes I would have like a, you know, I would maybe say I'm in healthcare or something like that, or the wellness space or whatever. Yeah. But I wouldn't say what I was because the funny thing is when I say I'm in healthcare, people assume I'm, uh, I then assumed I was like a nurse. So it was, it like shut down those questions because the minute that you say you're a physician, people like, you know, I mean, whoa, that's crazy. Or I remember one time I was at, um, like a festival and I had friends who knew what I did, some other sort of side friends, Friends of friends that didn't. And so it came up in conversation and they're like, I didn't know doctors came to places like this. And I was just like, wait, what? I don't know. It, so it was, a, it was an interesting sort of uh, an uncomfortable space for me. And I became more comfortable over the years because it's, it is what I do and it's my job. But I think what's interesting about the calling versus the job is one of the things I struggled with is, um, and I think a lot of people do. And I think maybe well, I'll say, I mean, maybe women do more. I think women do more. I'm unapologetically going to say that is that this feeling of like, since it's a calling, you should do a whole bunch of unpaid emotional labor all the time. Right? So like, if this was a job, if I went into my Costco shift and I worked my eight hour shift and then I left, nobody would fault me for leaving when my shift is done and not coming back in to help out, not, you know, taking customer complaints from home and doing returns from home, right? Why? Because I'm not being paid. And in medicine, it's like, okay, so you have your your shift, you have your patients that you're going to see, you have your, you know, whatever inbox or panel management, whatever you're doing. But then also all of the side work that comes in that you're supposed to do on your own time because it doesn't fit in. Yes, that's a systemic and a structural issue. But the point is, if you push back on that and say, I don't have enough time to do this, where do I put this in my day? This feels like too much to me. People are like, well, don't you want to help your patients? Hmm. It's part of the job. It's part of the job. what you signed up for. Exactly. Like you knew this is what it was going to be. And you're like, no, wait a minute. I actually just got a job as a doctor. I got trained as a doctor, like just like I'd get trained as a mechanic and fix people's cars. I I have a hard time with that difference. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a difference that we put on it culturally yeah. or, or society, I guess is a better um, word for that, but that's a problem. And I think that's part of what drives the burnout that we see. And part of what drives some of the trouble that we have interacting with that job is because at the end of the day, and for some people it is, I would say a calling, a thing like, I want to do this my whole life. Like I want to be seeped in this, but you know what? There's some people who do other jobs that they feel like it's their calling and their you know, they want to do it all the time and they, you know... But that can be any job and it's not just being a physician. And I think it's fine if that's what you want to do and you're fine spending your free time doing that. But like, I also think it's fine if it's a job.
0: Imagine that there's a frog sitting blissfully unaware in a pot of cold water. If you were to suddenly turn up the heat to boiling, the frog would immediately sense the danger and try to jump out to escape the boiling water. But... If you leave the stove on just a gentle simmer, the frog would think nothing of it. It might even look around and see its fellow frogs in the same situation, but no one else is complaining, so it doesn't say anything. Eventually, the water reaches a dangerously high temperature, but the frog continues to remain oblivious until it's too late. This story is often used as a cautionary tale known as the frog in the boiling pot. Now, let's draw a parallel to medical training. As aspiring doctors, we embark on this journey with excitement and a burning passion to make a difference in people's lives. However, as time goes on, the demands and challenges of medical training can gradually increase, much like the heat turning up for the frog. Medicine often demands its practitioners to prioritize it above everything else in their lives, including personal pursuits, family, and friendships. The path to becoming a healthcare professional can swiftly transform into an all-encompassing mission, making it challenging to recognize when the pressure starts boiling over. When all of your colleagues are in the same situation, overworked, stressed, grappling with difficult situations, trapped in the medical hierarchy, and often burdened by hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. It can feel like there is no other option but to ignore the temperature of the water you're swimming in. And it can even feel shameful to acknowledge that you're getting close to the boiling point when there are lives on the line. So I I think anybody who's been through the training process
1: to become a physician is well aware of how encompassing that is. And, and you know, since I had to go, you know, get sciences of post back in order to get into medical school, in order to get into residency, it was a really long process for me to even get in there. And, and all of that is, I mean, taking five science classes at once and then working three jobs to pay. F- I mean, like that's that's a different thing, but that's busy. Right. And so that was busy. And then med school's busy and residency's busy. And I became a parent during late med school, you know, early residency. And it's just all that stuff. You don't have time to stop and look around and you get on. Medicine's one of those things that like you get on the escalator, the people mover, and you just, as long as you just, you kind of stay facing forward, like you'll get there. I mean, if you're I mean, people are always like, wow, it's so hard to be, to become a doctor. Well, it's sort of hard, but if you have the, if you have the brains to do it and the commitment to do it, it's actually not that hard. You just really have to stay between the lines and then you'll get there at the end. Right. So, so you get there, but you don't have time to look around when you're doing it. And I, I think what was happening is I, I had a, just such a different life before medicine i was a very different person not a different person i'm the same person but i lived outwardly a much different life i kept having to take things out in order to add more medicine in more knowledge or more mm-hmm. um or more of the way i structured my days right there just wasn't enough time right I, and then i on add to that momming right like i had to be a parent And a doc, there's no more room. There's not even enough room to be a parent and a doctor.
0: Even being a parent can be such an all encompassing identity. Trying to cram in a whole other life, which is medicine, which already is all encompassing, that must have been so challenging
1: right but at the same time it's just what everybody did it's what yeah. all of my other female colleagues were doing like it's just what we do and so i don't know any different i became a parent in this world and so i don't know what it's like to not be like okay in 2 weeks my rotation changes and i'm going to be working nights and how am i going to do child care and who's going to take care of my kid and how am i going to pick him up and you know the clinic thing of like i'm going to get charged a dollar a minute from you know from aftercare if i don't get out of here and there by 6 and okay it was you know, all those, like, that's my only frame of reference. Yeah. And, you know, but like,
0: like there was a late admit and now you get charged because your kid had to stay behind.
1: Right. For- and they're sitting there and they're mad at me. And I'm mad too. Cause I certainly would, you know, but it's yeah. just, that's all I've known. And, um, and so to do that, I mean, you know, and even just like being a mom, like on a, just a sidetrack, I mean, like I missed my kid's first birthday, first steps, for, I mean, you know, like I missed all this stuff because I was working, you know, between 80 and 100 hours a week for a long, long time. And it's not that that's good or bad. That's a way to do it, but it's just that's the way it was for me. And so anyway, having that, having doctoring, there's not enough time. For anybody to have their own identity in that, you know, or you can, but you're, you just have to give something up somewhere, right? There's so many hours in a day. So that's what I mean. Like I sort of just pushed that other stuff because in the moment it wasn't important. It was more important that I parent and that I do my job. Um, and so what happened, I, I in medical school, first year of medical school, kind of had the feeling like I might not be in the right place, mm. Um I just came out of it. I'd already been in the working world in the, a different life for many years before I went back to medical school. And so when I got there, that structure felt really weird to me, right? It was just, it is weird. I'm, I'm sorry, but the way we train is so weird. I had bosses, air quotes, uh, senior residents or attendings or fellows or whoever, they had literally never been out of school in their entire life. And they don't know how to manage it. I mean, they might be really smart in their medical stuff, but they don't know how to manage a team. They don't understand like working dynamics with other people, or at least that's the sense I got. The, the demeaning nature of, you know, I got yelled at for leaning against the wall when I was 34 weeks pregnant by an OB resident, because I had been on all night and I was exhausted and And hadn't eaten and was tired. And I literally got yelled at for being disrespectful to the team and the patients for leaning against a wall. And it was just this kind of thing where I was like, oh, man, like, I don't think I can, this isn't a structure that I feel is human enough for me to function in. And I went and I talked to my advisor and my advisor was like, you know, until you really get solidly into your clinicals, I don't think you can make this decision. Hmm. So I stayed And that was in my sort of first, second year of medical school. And then by the time I had time to look around again, I had a baby on the way and I was super in debt. And I was like, well, this is the only way I can go forward. And there are things I like about it. Tons of things I like about it. Don't get me wrong. You know, and so I was like, "Okay, I might as well keep going. And then I'm already on the people mover and it's harder to get off and figure out a different way to make enough money to pay back these loans than it is to just keep going. So I just sort of kept going. And it's. I think it's that classic example of like the frog and the boiling water. I mean, like my water warmed up really slowly for a long time. And then residency was terrible because residency is terrible and hard. And, it even um, sounds
0: like your advisor is almost telling you the water isn't hot. It, isn't, it actually isn't that warm. Totally. This yeah. is like barely a bath. This is lukewarm. You can't even decide the temperature until it's boiling. Exactly. Like, okay. I guess I'll stay in there. I guess I'll stay in there. already hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Let's just stick it out.
1: Keep going. Right. And so I so that kinda of residency was tough. You get a certain level of burnt out in residency of I think every resident does. Um, you're just really overused in residency. Residency is a crappy, like medical training is a crappy setup. Like I don't like it. I don't think it does good for people. I think, I don't think we need to break people down to build them up. I don't believe in that. I, I don't, I don't think it helps in any way. I don't think we have to work people until they die in order to make them good clinicians. I think is all bullshit. But then anything afterwards feels better. Mm. So it's like, you're like, medical school and I'm done. Oh, now I'm in residency. Okay. So it's going to be a little better. And I just have to get through intern year and I just have to get through second year. And I just, you know, and I just have to graduate and then I can get a job. It's like that delayed gratification. You keep waiting for that next step where it's going to get easier. And it does get easier each step a little bit in a certain way. And so you get out of residency and into practice. Okay. This is better. Now I know my schedule. Now I have a little more control. I'm not working nights or whatever you choose. I, I, I've made some choices. I'm making more money, those kind of things. Um, And, but then, you know, I hit another level down level about two 18 months to two years into practice which i think is c- pretty common you know mm-hmm. you're you're, you're kind of really in there and like that shine of not being a resident anymore is off and you're like oh this is how this is you're really into the business of medicine at that point and seeing all the ways that you're kind of a cog in the capitalistic wheel making money for a system more so than taking care of patients or at least that's what i felt you're getting the brunt of the um churn of patients wanting to find new providers to give because maybe they haven't gotten the answers that they want or feel like they should have gotten from other people and so you're getting a lot of tough patients and anyway i had another low but again i'm like you, <laughs> like you just can't quit you, i just you're too far in debt and you're also like i have this calling and i have this big job and i you know and so i changed my practice style a little bit i you know did the things, the things that they tell you, like, yeah. here's your list of things.
0: Step one, step two, if if you fail the five steps, it's not that the systems are problem. No. You need to go back to step one. You totally. need to try yoga. You yeah. have a yoga deficiency, for yeah. sure. That's
1: like a big one, you know, or like not enough smoothies or, yeah. you know, here's your kind bar. We appreciate you, doctor, on doctor's day. Like, thanks. That's so nice. <laughs> How you know, kind of you. I know, kind Why of you. Why am I working 90 hours? <laughs> exactly.
0: In the peak of the pandemic, many healthcare professionals grappled with a stark reality. While friends, families, and their patients could stay home, quarantining for their safety, that luxury wasn't an option for them. Endangering themselves and their loved ones, they showed up for work day after day as their workload dramatically increased. For doctors, on top of long days in clinics or hospitals, this meant dedicating even more of their personal time to answering inbox messages from scared and vulnerable patients. But let's not forget, these doctors were scared, vulnerable, and burnt out too, without the same protections they provided for the patients that they cared for.
1: I was in a role in primary care, where we never shut down. In fact, we got busier and yeah. we had more inbox work. We had more patients that were not only terrified, but also mean and, and you sicker know, and, and sicker and well, right. And because right. fear creates, you know, anger and I mean, you know, it's like all linked, right? But like we had harder patients, harder interactions, more work, less compensation. Mm-hmm. More uncertainty. I mean, in the beginning, when we didn't have any PPE, just like everybody else, we had one mask for a week, right? I mean, that's scary and nobody knows what's going on. And you're like, am I going to give this to my family and kill my family, right? Because, and even though that was only a few months in our world where we wondered about that, like that still was big. That was emotionally really hard.
0: Yeah. To- you have kids at home too. So, I mean, the level of risk, even seeing other parents, Getting to work from home or saying, oh, well, my company did XYZ. And was there a part of you that was like, I didn't sign up for this? Oh,
1: I mean, absolutely. But it was more so that thing when people would come in and just be like, oh, I won't leave my house. And oh, I, you know, I'm not, I'm keeping my family safe. And like, we're quarantined and we're in a bubble. And part of me is sometimes I'm, and I'm, I learned to bake bread. Isn't that lovely? And I'm just F you, bring me some bread. Cause you know what I'm doing? I'm out here taking care of you and all of, you know, and then you've got the people who are super concerned and mad at you because they can't get vaccines. And then you've got the people who are coming saying, Quit talking to me about vaccines and, you know, conspiracy theory, nanoparticles and whatever. And I'm just like, this is that not is. my job. yeah, like get out. like i yeah. do you want me to help you or not? I don't want to get political about this. I just like I'm here to do my job, and like my job's kind of scary right now. And so that kind of that just like was a like it was a abrupt low, like a like ugh, like a hit. and then, It just from there for me, it just never got better again. And I'm just like, this is not, yeah, this is not what I signed up for. I cannot do it like this. They're just basically like over the three years of the pandemic, like more and more and more got added to us, Hmm. you know, and just there's a lot of backup need. We need to see more patients. And so I just realized that like, we're never going to be on top of this with this current system, this this system is super broken. It's broken for providers. It's broken for patients. And the only person that's not broken for is the capitalistic asshole drivers who are making the money, who are not the providers or the patients. And that's the only people who are winning. And I'm like, I don't want to work. I don't want to do that. I'm not here to make people money. And to me, the American medical system certainly isn't retaining providers. I hit a very 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 low point. My lowest emotional point I've ever been in my life. Thinking and feeling in ways that I never have before and I it was scary to say like I would rather like just think about not being here than getting up and going to work every day and doing this. And it was really dark and I couldn't spend time with my family. I would come home I'd already cut my hours a lot. I, as much as I could anyway, I mean, I was working part air quote part time for the system, which is really still 50 hours a week. Right. But it's part time. So unpaid. So, you know, 25 hours of those plus a week, I'm not getting paid for, but um, you know, and, but I would come home and I couldn't be with my family because I'm just like, I'm so burnt out and like emotionally, like, empty and could not talk and connect and I just was frayed there just was nothing left
0: from the moment a doctor steps into the clinic they are bombarded with countless micro decisions is this chest pain a heart attack or just heartburn should I biopsy that mole do I have the time to order a mammogram today do I want to prescribe 5 or 10 milligrams of amlodipine Each decision is just one puzzle piece in the grand mosaic of patient care, each decision crucial in the health and well-being of patients that are putting trust and faith into the hands of their doctor. While seemingly minor on their own, the cumulative impact of these micro-decisions can significantly shape patient outcomes and overall care. But here's the thing. With each decision, the mental toll adds up the amount of decisions required by a doctor to make in just one day can seem overwhelming and almost superhuman. The weight of constant choices can lead to something called decision fatigue, a type of cognitive exhaustion that impacts our ability to make sound judgments. So micro decisions are like not the
1: big decisions, like, I don't know, even like, like, what am I going to do with my life? But more like every day I wake up, what, what clothes am I going to wear today? What am I going to eat? What am I going to eat for this? And then what am I going to feed my kid? And what, like, basically every move we make throughout the day is a micro decision in medicine and in there are a trillion micro decisions, right? You're like, you're deciding when you're interviewing a patient, which question am I going to ask next? Which um, thread that they're talking about am I going to focus on? Which uh, part of this physical exam am I going to dial down on in my few minutes? What tests am I going to order? What this? You've got, and then you've got like pharmacy asking for this and, and imaging asking for this. And like, you're being, making all these teeny tiny decisions. And each time you do that, it like wears down your sort of mental acuity and your your level of mental energy and your cognitive function. And so if you make a trillion micro decisions in a day, you're making really shitty micro decisions by the end of the day. Yeah. And I think that's really like we get worse and, and and I don't, there are not a lot of other jobs, careers, whatever, where you're making that many micro decisions that might have a very big and unfortunate impact. And we do them like they're just nothing because we have no other choice because you have to. And they're just coming at you all the time.
0: I think about even like small things like, oh, I'm going to change this dose of this like diuretic and you're tired and you pick the wrong dose or you go too aggressive or you forget to schedule that BMP and then next thing you know, that person's in the ER with a potassium of like 6.5. Seriously. Because of one tiny
1: thing. Tiny thing. And then the man, right. I had a clinic day where I had a, a young woman come in who had an intrauterine fetal demise at 19 weeks. I saw her, couldn't find heart tones, did an ultrasound, didn't see movement, had to send her for a formal ultrasound. So I've got her, she's devastated. I've got her going over to the hospital for this scan and then is gonna come back to talk to me. In the middle, I'm trying to see another patient who is a some Chinese dialect that's very difficult to find an interpreter for. I misread their age which means I misread their A1C goal, which means I give them a completely wrong plan for their medication that I don't think they understood anyway because I think that the interpretation was not going very well. I have an entire, well, I'm also getting pinged from radiology and called and all this other stuff and my brain is half over here. So essentially I have a completely incorrect visit with a human being who I now am putting at danger of iatrogenic, hyperglycemia, right? Because I didn't give that person the right goal. I then have to sit back down. I don't realize that till the end of the day. And I reread the age and I'm like, oh crap, your A1C goal is actually much lower. And I took a medicine away instead of adding one. You know what I mean? Anyway, and I have to go back and then basically put a phone call out and say, please call patient to clarify this visit. It's because I made a mistake because I, my brain was somewhere else because I was thinking about someone else who needed yeah. something else. So anyway,
0: you're not a robot, right? I am very excited to introduce this next segment on medicine on mass on this podcast. We are honored to share the incredible work of our listeners, reflective poems, letters, spoken word pieces, all submitted anonymously. Each piece has been thoughtfully paired with a guest who can offer valuable reflections and insights. Today, we have a moving spoken word piece generously contributed by a healthcare worker who wishes to remain anonymous. This piece has been specifically selected for our family medicine attending to reflect on during this episode. And remember, you too can contribute your own pieces, whether you prefer to be identified and credited or remain anonymous. Your words hold the power to inspire and heal. What is my doctor doing? I am already 25 minutes late to see you. You have been waiting for 45 minutes because you were told to come to the clinic 20 minutes before your appointment, which you did. You have a list of questions. I am meeting you for the first time. I come into the room and sit down in a frenzy, introduce myself. I believe I'm assigned as your new regular doctor. I'm excited to meet you. I keep two or three seconds of eye contact, but now I must stare at the screen, both the bane of my existence and also a life raft in a stormy sea. I see you have chronic conditions that have not been put into my system because you were seen at a different hospital. My screen freezes you start talking about your back pain. I frantically memorize what you were saying. Remember the red flags. I'm looking for imaging, labs. Have you seen a neurosurgeon about this before? My last patient, the patient that made me 25 minutes late to see you, just got his EKG for chest pain that he frustratingly told me about in the last minute of the appointment. I'm worried he might be having his fifth heart attack today. His wife looked so worried frown lines deepening in her face. You cannot remember what medications you take. You mentioned a small white pill and maybe a round pink one? Or maybe it was a yellow one. I hate this game. Cardiology is urgently messaging me in the background about the maybe heart attack guy. I need to respond to this, but I'm already 25 minutes late in talking with you and it would be rude to leave the room now. I continue listening to you while also trying to figure out what cardiology wants my medical assistant messages me on an entirely different application you need to sign this vaccination order doc ah yes now i remember i have a three-year-old screaming in the room next door next in line pharmacy calls an entirely different patient is downstairs and needs a refill now the refill request came yesterday to my inbox I remember asking my patient to give at least seven days advance notice before an opioid is refilled. The patient has decided to show up to the pharmacy before I've even seen the refill request. I keep getting called by the pharmacist. Pharmacist messages, patient is angry, has been in the lobby for 20 minutes, can you just sign it real quick? No, I cannot sign this real quick. You're mentioning something about a car accident when you were 12 when you were hit by a drunk driver that causes chronic, severe back pain. I want to be sympathetic. I want to hold your hand and ask you how you're coping, but instead what comes out of my mouth is, oh, I'm so sorry. As the word sorry leaves my mouth, I have just signed the order that cardiology wants. I am not even in your medical chart right now. I hate myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, that actually
1: kind of makes me tearful. That's just like, that's such a regular day and it's so shitty. Like, that's just a shitty day. Like, it's funny because it's every day. Like, when I read it on somebody else's day, I'm like, oh my God, it's such a shitty day for you. But like, that's every freaking day. Like, how are you, how is a human being supposed to do all that stuff? And how is that supposed to be a job? <laughs> and it's not fair to patients. And it's not fair to us. <laughs> it's... Yeah, It's not the care any of us need. Oh my God. It's just terrible. And like, that's that feeling of like worrying that you're like, at my worst of my burnout, I hated everybody who walked in my door. Mm -hmm. I love people. I am an extrovert. I enjoy connecting socially. I enjoy hearing people's stories in my real life. I love talking to people about what they're doing. And my superpower with people is to be able to connect I think, on, on, a, on a like workable level really quickly. But when I got to that burnout point, I, if, if they just said anything hurt, I would just in my head just start going through like, I would just think they were like, oh, this is terrible, but just like whining, like yeah. not doing anything. Like, don't make me adult for you. Like, don't make me solve these problems for you that are your problem. Like, don't make me solve your life for you. Like, go... Do your own work. Like, this is not my job for you. And I don't have time for this right now. Like, I are you dying? Are you sick? You're not. GTFO, man. Like, I got things to do. And then on my raw days, I'm terrified that all these different pulls on my attention, like, I'm gonna miss that EKG. Or like somebody who comes in with GERD is having a heart attack. Or somebody who comes in with a migraine and a normal neuro exam, but maybe I didn't dig in deep enough is having, you know, a dissected artery. I mean, like I...
0: Did I ask about jaw claudication? Right. Like, did I ask ask about pulsatile
1: tinnitus? Like, I just, it's like, I get afraid I'm because I'm so busy that I'm going to miss something. And all those inbox results and they come in and like, I've got a potassium of 2.6, but it's three days old. And like, why, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, you know, or it's just so... It's like either really like angering and like you just get hard and cold and like, or it's like terrifying and like I get frozen Mm. and don't know what to do. It's really hard to stay in that middle zone because it's not possible. Doing all of that is not possible. And I don't think that patients and people that aren't in the medical world understand what that is. Cause other people would read that and be like, holy shit. And I think any physician is gonna read that and be like, "Yeah." normal
0: day thanks for listening to medicine unmasked healing the healers through anonymous storytelling as always i'm your host dr Sonia pimparker we've got a lot of anonymous voices lined up for you on the show and they're not holding back
1: all of medical school and residency is performative. Every, every aspect of it is. And then to top on that being like, oh, my attending just made a homophobic comment or a racist comment. And I have to just sit here quietly and take it because if I don't, I could not graduate. So it creates a spiral where you're like, like if I say something, it could ruin my entire life, my career.
0: And the whole time, he would still like tell us all of us, didn't matter you know if, if you're cleaning the room, if you're a physician or the RT, that it was conspiracy and it wasn't real. And basically everything he can do just to to gasp for air.
1: But like you're in an ICU. it's like just like round, say all these horrible things and horrible plans for these horribly sick patients. Cool next one and you go next and you go next and you go next but you're like never the person that sticks around and has to deal with the like consequences of that information that you just told these people
0: do you enjoy writing reflective pieces such as poems letters or spoken word just like you heard today Do you want your work to be shared on this podcast for another anonymous healthcare worker to experience and reflect on? If so, send us a message on our Instagram at Medicine Unmasked or on our website, MedicineUnmasked.com. Don't forget to include if you want to stay anonymous or if you want your work to be credited. Join us next time on Medicine Unmasked. Take care. Medicine Unmasked is a production of Unmasked Studios, LLC. The opinions shared on this podcast are solely of those anonymous guests and do not represent the views of all healthcare workers, any specific organization, employer, healthcare system, the host, or Unmasked Studios, LLC.